everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion for our Black Voices Matter series. Um, I am joined as usual by my co-host, Yubi and Mike, whose sole job is to, to make me smile on these podcasts. How are you guys doing? <laughs> I, that's that's a, uh, quite the honor to make you smile, Nina. I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> me too. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. So we have a we have a great guest today. Um, it's it's really hard to put a bio together for Randy Moore. Uh, his you know one of the titles he has is Chief Operating Officer of Co-op, but um, Randy has lived in the north, south, east, and west of this country. Um, he has worked in the nonprofit, for-profit, uh, corporate, um, education leadership space. He's bilingual um, and is currently working on his doctorate at Arizona State University. Uh, the doctor is on leadership and innovation. And uh, I'm really excited to have Randy here. Uh, Randy, welcome. Thank you so much, Nina. Uh, and hey, Yubi and Mike, great to be on with the three of you. Thanks for inviting. So Randy, the first question we always ask our guests is, is a real check-in just to see how you're doing. And so the, the big question is, is just, how are, how are you? How are you holding up in all of this? Yeah, so um, that question for me is so loaded <laughs> because the last, uh, I would really say like month and a half, um, I've just had like a whirlwind of emotions. Um, I uh, have been, you know, uh, hurt, but inspired, um, you know, saddened, but motivated, um, so many things. And I, uh, you know, one of the movies, and I've been telling uh, my friends and coworkers about Get Out by Jordan Peele, um, there's this term uh, or phrase, uh, the sunken place. And I feel like I, uh, in many ways in my professional and even in my personal life have been uh, in the sunken place. And so awakened, I think is an adjective that I would use to describe how I, I, I've mostly been feeling um, awakened. You've been doing some incredibly powerful work with, you know, young people and and employers um, in, in recently right now. But I think in order for our audience to understand the perspective you're bringing today, I was wondering if you could just tell everyone a little bit about your journey to where you are and what you're working on today. Sure. So I, I think, you know, I grew up in New York. Um, and grew up in, in various communities, Jamaica, Queens, Elmont, New York, the Bronx, Brooklyn. Uh, I've lived in every borough except Staten Island. Uh, and um, I think, you know, the, the thing I've been thinking about a lot is, uh, and what's led me to where I am today is, you know, the messages that I received growing up. And so I wanna, you know, start, I think with my, you know, my, my mother's uh, parents. Uh, so my grandfather uh, was from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was also a minister, so he loves that reference that he was born in Bethlehem. I'm like, but Papa, it's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, but he, uh, you know, he under uh, President Truman's um, administration, there was a constriction, which was basically the draft. And I know that they drafted 1.8 million American men to be in the uh, Korean War. So he was drafted into the army. He went and he fought in the Korean War. Uh, my grandmother often tells of stories, and I guess they didn't have the term back then, PTSD, of his, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and, you know, talking about, you know, uh, a lot of the death that he witnessed uh, fighting there. Uh, so when he came back, um, he was meeting up with two of his fellow soldiers, one of whom uh, was a white soldier. They were his brothers. They had all gone over to fight 
for this country who said that it was a part of their duty uh, as American citizens to fight. Uh, and he went, uh, he was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is the capital of his home state. And they went to an Italian restaurant to get something to eat on um, downtown in Third Street. Uh, my family and I know the story very well. Uh, so the three men go in with their uniforms, proud Americans, and they sit down to get something to eat. The manager comes out quickly and tells my grandfather, I'm sorry, sir, we cannot serve you here. We do not serve Negroes. So my grandfather and his two colleagues, uh, one of whom said, if you can't serve him, you can't serve me, us. You know, we just came back from fighting for our country. And my grandfather walks outside of that restaurant on Third Street and he looks up and he sees the Capitol building uh, of his home state. And that was one of the lowest moments for him because he was a proud American citizen and did what um, this country told him he needed to do. Um, yet it was almost as though America was laughing at him and saying, ha, 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 you're still a nigger. Um, and I know that may sound vulgar to many, but it's the truth. And it's, and it's uh, a story that I haven't shared with many, uh, but I feel like I need to because these are the narratives that many black and brown folks grow up with uh, in this country. Um, and I have taken that with me everywhere. So my grandfather, you know, uh, who was a minister taught me about how to navigate a system that was not set up for us to succeed. And a lot of that has to do with this word that I've been toying with the past month and a half of obedience. To be successful as a black person in America means you need to be obedient. Uh, but the problem that I have with that is that obedience is for pets, right? And so if we tie that back to slavery, it's almost as though we're living that, reliving that in a new context. So the work that I do with young people um, has been to help connect them to the workforce, right? For their economic sufficiency, but it's also been coded in this um, context of, you know, in order for you to succeed uh, in the workforce, um, you need to be obedient. And I am no longer, um, sticking to that message. And I think it's the wrong message to send if we truly want an America where all of our uh, people are, are uh, have equitable um, access to opportunity. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating because there is, you know, we've heard it, I think, in numerous times with other guests on this segment about that, that uh, this idea of a, a you know assimilation right mm -hmm. and and from uh like just keep your head down yes. and be safe and you know and it's it's just it's heartbreaking and that's i love how you put it about obedience is, is for a pet i mean if that doesn't resonate with everybody on what's going on i you know i don't know what what would um because you've you told us before that you you've even like you're grappling with your own um, part to to play in in that right and and in, in, in telling people how to assimilate because I think that, you know people we've talked to it was the, their parents and their grandparents who were part of that earlier generation who were like your grandfather who were dealing mm -hmm. with that um, in their face and you know, the, the, these, this, that generation was saying, look, just keep your head down and take care of your family and assimilate. Yes. But even now that's, that's still happening. And, and I think you, you, you felt that way too, right? 
I definitely felt that way, UB. I think, um, you know, assimilation, I think is such a strong word. And I, and I feel like it's rooted in, in racist uh, practices and policies. Um, you know, when we look at, I mean, there's been studies, there was one from Columbus, uh, uh, Columbia Business School around, you know, hair penalties for, um, for folks of color, right, wearing ethnic hairstyles. Um, I know for me, uh, and I've heard other, and, and it wasn't a term that I was familiar with, but I was watching um, the Wall Street Journal had a, a video interview, and there was a, a woman uh, of color professional, and she mentioned that she does what's called black math. <laughs> and it resonated with me where she would say like, okay, if I wear this hairstyle, this means I have to monitor this. Or if I say this in a meeting, then maybe I, you know, I need to be careful with this. It's definitely happened to me. I have watched where I have had um, been in spaces where white colleagues have become angry about something and they might slam their hand on a table or say something. And there have been times where I have mentioned something and I was passionate about it, and I was then told that I was aggressive. Um, I, you know, uh, there are times when I walk into a meeting and I may be the only person of color, and I've been at many tables um, that way, and sometimes um, my points aren't heard. Uh, but if someone else says the same thing, and maybe they have a different you know, uh, they went to an elite institution or they are white and it is then validated. Um, I think that this is when folks, you know, highlight unconscious bias, which I'm kind of over that term too. Let's just call it what it is, it's bias. Um, and I think that um, when, it, when it happens to you, you, you acknowledge it and you realize it happens, but then to call it out, I think that is the fear that many Black people have. It's a fear that I've had as a professional because then if I call it out, then I'm othered. Oh, you're one of them, right? Uh, that, that, that you know, you see everything through the lens of color, but they're not really looking at the root causes of everything. And so it is a super loaded topic. Um, and I think it's something that uh, we have to have granular conversations about it because if we don't, we are never going to get to the root of the problem. Um, all of the solutions are really just going to be topical and we don't need band-aids right now, right? We need to get to the root of things so we can kind of sprout uh, new growth and new policies that are anti-racist and, 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 and eradicate the racist policies. Absolutely. And I think I think you're bringing up a really interesting point, which is around this idea that in the workplace, you know, black people are really not allowed to bring their authentic selves, right? Like maybe some of the uh, folks in our audience um, have heard the term code switching, where you kind of speak and act a certain way at home. And then when you're in this, you know, mainstream white culture environment at work, you, you have to start speaking, behaving, and acting in a different way. Um, as you're talking to young people about navigating this world, how are you having these conversations that, you know, are setting them up to be successful, but also changing the dynamics about being able to bring their authentic selves? Yeah, so one, you know, that's a great question. And I think, you know, one, and this goes back to what you be asked about, you know, my own self-enlightenment um, and kind of uh, introspection during this period, I've realized that I need to one, utilize my platform uh, to share the things that I've experienced and to you know speak truth to power. Um, and I think that in turn affects um, the, the messages that I'm sending to young people. Um, 
And I think, you know, empowering our young people to realize that the problem is not with them. You know, we often in workforce use this term, the skills gap. Um, and when we look at, you know, young people from underserved communities, we often put the onus on them. And that is not fair. Um, when you look at, you know, populations that have been um, economically deprived, I mean, let's look at the wealth gap in this country, right? It, the white wealth, um, and that's when we talk about, you know, uh, it, it's different from income. So speaking of, you know, businesses and savings uh, and real estate is seven times greater than that of black people and five times greater than that of Latinx populations. That number has even gotten greater since 1963. Like that is, that's a real fact. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about code switching, um, that is something that we need to really unpack, right? And just it, so for the, the listeners who may not be familiar with it, um, HBR defines it as, you know, code switching helps black workers to construct delicate self-protective boundaries between their personal and professional lives. So all folks do it, but not to the level that black people have to do, you know? Um, when we look at, there was a uh, study by the Center um, for Talent Innovation and they defined the three um, kind of, um, uh, 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 I guess uh, you can call them uh, qualities that are looked at when folks are to be promoted was uh, gravitas, uh, communication, and appearance. <laughs> All three of those are rooted in race. And when we look at studies that look at, um, you know, how Black women uh, are perceived when they have uh, natural hairstyles, we know that they are not viewed as professional. What I feel is really um, disheartening and something that I will not, you know, uh, 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 force to my students, uh, the young people that I serve and say that it's okay, is saying that you have to chemically process your hair to be considered professional. If I don't know what self-hate is, <laughs> uh, that, that definitely is a definition for it, that you cannot bring your natural self to a workplace and be considered professional. And I never thought about it that deeply, uh, but that is a real thing and it's a real phenomenon that is happening. And I, and I know that there are employers that are working towards this. And uh, at co-op, we've been fortunate to work with many employers that are embracing this uh, and, and engaging us head on and, and, and really um, accepting our young people for who they are. But then there are a lot of employers that need to do a lot more work. Randy, I, I appreciate this and you're, um... You're, you're talking a language I really enjoy is, is like, so how do you, how do you help bridge? How do you help uh, connect this up? So systemic change, uh, do you, you, we have to, for systemic change to truly uh, be in place, right? So this is no lo this isn't just a, another trendy, whatever movement we would like to make systemic change. You have to get the business community involved uh, and you have to, you, you have to raise the boats from a financial opportunity perspective. So uh, I love hearing what you're saying from both sides of that, that, you know, so workforce development is very much the, it, it, it is the workforce, right? It is uh, marginalized communities. Uh, how are you, 
like give can you talk more about like what it is you're talking to the the the, the future workforce right mm-hmm. and and then also you said one thing about like hairstyle but there's there's more there's more than that so yes. can you elaborate more on both sides of that fence about the workforce and the work environment sure so that's a, a great question uh, Mike, so I, you know, um, one, I think with the workforce um, or the, the and, and I guess the environment too, right? Um, if I can use this metaphor of grassroots to grass top, um, and we saw this a lot with um, a lot of the statements about Black Lives Matter from corporations, um, you know, a lot of policies around diversity, equity, and inclusion um, have become, become jargony. Uh, and are very much grass top policies that do not affect grassroots. Um, so when I speak about grassroots in the workforce context, I'm talking about recruitment and, um, and hiring. And so one problem that we see is these wor- uh, workforce uh, or, uh, or employment referral programs. Um, my CEO and founder, you know, Kalani Leifer, he mentions this a lot. And he's also a white male. And he mentions, you know, if I were to recommend or refer uh, or do favors for 10 people, there's, it's quite possible that, you know, eight out of 10 of those people are going to be other white people, right? So we need to really um, look at the policies on the, the, the front end that gains access to the organizations. Also, um, you know, we serve our city and state college systems, right? Where a large population of underserved students are attending colleges and um, you know, working very diligently to get through just like those uh, at elite colleges. However, many employers are, you know, with their, um, their recruitment strategies are partnering with, the, with specifically uh, prestigious colleges or elite colleges. That is also an issue because then you are not tapping into another workforce. And so one, I would say looking at the recruitment and hiring practices and, and really fundamentally, you know, as HR and, and frontline business um, uh, teams looking at how do you define talent? Um, and I think that that is a, a challenge that often happens is that we have this kind of mainstream white dominant uh, 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 workforce, and we're not really looking at talent in other places because we haven't built a common definition around what talent uh, uh, comprises of in our organizations. So I would say as much as we have these grass top policies, they need to be very much rooted in what's happening on the grassroots level. And it really needs to be bi-directional because it's one thing for a CEO to come out and make this statement. But I know from personal experience in the past two weeks, I've spoken to two of the students that I serve and both of their organizations um, uh, have put out statements uh, and they don't see what's happening, uh, uh, you know, they don't see the equity that's happening within their own departments. And so I think there needs to be this kind of organizational introspection that needs to happen as well. Sorry, I was on mute. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think by now I'd have figured this out, but... um... (laughs) Well, oh man, I mean, there's so much to to unpack here. Like what, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like personally for you, what, what, what are you doing? Like, what are you, what are some of the things that you're doing 
you know, personally to, yeah. to kind of work through all this, to take care of yourself, to, yeah. to start to, you know, make change, if you will. Yeah. So some that, you know, some of this goes back to what Mike was asking about, you know, workforce and, and environment. I think I am really analyzing myself in each of those spaces. And now that I'm in a, in a position where I can create a lot of those grass top practices and make sure that they're happening on the grassroots level for my organization, um, making sure that I am living those values. Um, and a lot of that has to do with research and really understanding that I, you know, really, really ensuring that I understand the history behind a lot of things, um, how a lot of um, policies are steeped in racism and, you know, even the language that I use, like, I don't need to say institutionalized racism because racism was founded to be institutional. Right. I don't need to say oppressive structures because racism was created um, so that there could be oppressive structures. And so really understanding what that is. Um, one book that I've been reading that I really enjoy is by and he's from my community, uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, and he wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. And it gives a lot of definitions to some of the things that we see and really speaks to, um, you know, the, the focus on policy, uh, which I think is something that's important. And also understanding this idea of double consciousness and, um, and code switching and what it means to be my authentic self. Um, and if it's okay, I, I wanna read something to you all that um, I went to a historical, uh, historic black college, a Wilberforce University. It was the first private AME college uh, in, it's in Wilberforce, Ohio. Uh, and it was that named actually after um, an English abolitionist. And one of the books we read, and I'll be honest with you all, I didn't pay much attention in that class. It was African-American history. Um, and I have since gone back in the past two months and uh, have reread it, right? And it's by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. But he says something that I think um, really speaks to this idea that many Black people live with, um, and especially in the workplace. And so he says, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American and a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spat upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. So when I, when I read that, and the reason I wanted to share that, that was written in 1903, 117 years ago. And while we've had many changes and some may call them transformations, 
you know, many of the systems that existed then still exist now. Um, and this idea of this two-ness, this double consciousness of being a Black person is very true, uh, at least for me it is. And it's something that many of us carry around in the world. Um, and I think in the workplace, just because we've made it, right, we've obtained a college degree, doesn't mean that we're not going into um, these uh, kind of, uh, you know, racist structures. And I think that um, in order for a person to feel like, I think it's, it's truly nuanced when you tell a Black person, you know, can you be your authentic self in the workplace? Um, and that's something I've been wrestling with as well. And, and my young people have been showing me uh, how, how to do it, but we have to really create spaces for that double consciousness to feel um, you know, to, to, to feel okay, right? And to feel like I can be my full self in whatever that means um, at all times. And we are not there yet. Well, I, I so appreciate, A, the, the words, uh, you reading that, Randy, I'm, uh, I, I actually, I want to go more there of where, you know, so, you know, how, how do we know that I mean, let's do let's do the clock, right? So it's it's twenty one thirty seven. It's one hundred and seventeen years in the future. Mm -hmm. Give me your crystal ball. How do we know that we're not going to be just we're we're not still like attempting to change the narrative? How do we know that the narrative has been shifted? Yeah, it's a great question. And while I don't feel I have all the answers, I mean, if I could look into my beautiful crystal ball, uh, I would say that one. Um, there is severe board transformation and diversification. So we need more women on boards, more BIPOC, right? People on boards, um, more gender fluidity, fluidity and, and representation on boards, more sexual orientation diversity on boards in C-suite leadership. Um, we need to change our recruiting and hiring practices. And then I think as the percentages change and as our policies change um, in 2037, I think we would have created a more equitable uh, environment because we've really approached it from a grassroots to grass top uh, uh, method. I also think that the uh, by doing so, we will have changed kind of the um, the 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 wealth disparities in our country. I think we need to look at housing policies, right? And uh, there have been a lot of studies. I was reading something, uh, a Brookings report on, um, you know, uh, racialized policies in the housing market, right? Uh, and we saw a lot of that, even a lot of social entrepreneurs who applied for the payroll protection program. So we really need to look at you know, um, our, our, our policies and programs that are on local, state, and federal levels uh, and, and, and kind of question those and rewrite those. Um, I think that um, also uh, I mentioned uh, to you all about how we define talent. Um, and I think if each company really looks at their core values, are their core values steeped? Uh, and truly enveloped in anti-racist uh, methodology and practices and language. Um, and then what are the evaluation methods um, that we are incorporating and utilizing in organizations to ensure that we are staying true to our values and we're living our values? 
Um, so I know that's a lot and it's kind of spaghetti on the wall, but those are some of the things that I think need to be done to really achieve the type of America that, um, that, that, that we want to have, that we know that we need. You know, a lot of our listeners, I mean, there's definitely business leaders, right? Folks who are running their running, uh, companies that are listening to our, our podcast, but there are also a lot of people who are further down the org chart mm-hmm. who really want to be able to take some action, concrete action. You know, what do you say to those folks who um, want to do something, but just don't know how to get, get started on all of this? Yeah. So one thing I think, you know, there are some things that, uh, you know, I've seen that have helped a lot of the young people we serve. So most organizations have affinity groups um, and, you know, uh, reaching out and joining an affinity group is a great way um, that um, you're able to kind of talk about uh, issues that affect folks on on many layers of diversity, however you identify. I also think finding a mentor is key. And, and, you know, oftentimes we talk about the benefits of mentors that, you know, may have your same race or identity or ethnicity rather. Um, However, uh, it's also good to have mentors that don't. You know, one of my mentors, he just retired. Uh, He's a a 70 year old uh, white man who's a college president, right? And one of my greatest mentors and I'm able to talk to him about issues and, uh, you know, things that affect me as a black male. Um, and that that's hard to find sometimes, right? Not everyone is going to be uh, able to have those conversations, but when you find it and you have that great relationship, it is so transformative. Um, having someone that's, uh, you know, either at the same level you are at work or maybe a bit higher to have those relationships with. An example, you know, I currently have a great partnership with um, the CEO of our organization and the COO. He and I work very closely, but we have deep conversations about race, about our identities, um, how we engage the voices of our team members. And I think that those conversations, when when all of these, uh, uh, you know, issues recently kind of bubbled up, we were already in a place where we were able to, to act and to um, really understand where one another are coming from. So what I would say to young people, you know, find that that mentor, find those spaces at work where these conversations are happening. Uh, do your research, understand uh, what, um, what, what the, the rhetoric is and what the conversation is around, you know, uh, BIPOC communities entering uh, in the workforce. Um, I've been doing a lot of that the past couple of weeks and, it, and it's been helpful because you can kind of identify best practices and, and see what works for you. Um, so some of this I think is about agency, right? And what the, um, the worker can do, but I also wanna be cautious not to put everything on them. And that's why I think my message is, is more to the employers um, because I think when we, when we do it the other way, yes, I believe in agency, but then it also can kind of, you know, be looked at as a deficit model where, you know, um, we're saying that they need to do a lot of the changes. And from what I've seen, and even being on the inside looking out, um, uh, employers really need to do a lot of introspection and change their practices. Yeah, that you put an amazing fine point on, um, I think what we would agree is is uh, the way to to start to make that change, and it, it does have to come from leadership. They have to understand 
that the only way to make change is to deep dive into every single thing throughout the organization. I mean, every policy and procedure that mm -hmm. we have in this country is fraught with inequities and, and, you know, and, and it, it's, you, we can't fix it until we find every inequality in there and change it. Mm -hmm. And that's only going to happen with, you know, with a, a leadership that, that supports that effort. And so I appreciate you um, saying that in, in, and I, gosh, man, Randy, everything you've said today has just been really, um, really great because it's, we're starting to see like this, this almost playbook of ways that people can actually go out and, and not only keep the movement going, keep the conversation going, but actually start to make change. Um, so thank you for today. This, this was incredible. No problem. Yeah. I don't think 30 minutes is enough. Thank you. And can I just make one more? There was one more thing that I wanted to say. Um, yeah, was, please. Uh, Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I, I think there are some folks who may be listening to this and say, well, you know, you know, I feel that black folks have the same opportunity, right? If they're in the workplace, they can climb just like I, cl I can climb. And um, that to me, uh, you know, while I, you know, every, we can agree to disagree, I just think that that is not an informed um, a point of view. And one thing that, uh, you know, President Lyndon Johnson said, and he said it at a Howard University speech, uh, and this was June 4th, 1965. He said, you do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All of our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. Oh, what a powerful quote. I love that. I think it's a perfect place to end. Um, Randy, oh. thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, thank you, UB and Mike, as usual. Um, so uh, to our listeners, uh, this podcast is going to is live on chooseinclusion.com. You can also listen to it on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And uh, we're going to continue this Black Voices Matter series indefinitely. So uh, just check out our website to stay in touch with us. And uh, if you have recommendations on folks that you think should be on here whose voices need to be amplified, please send them our way too. Thanks, everyone. And have a good day. Thank you, Nina. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye-bye.